Deborah Lindholm, one of the uh, formees this year, member of form, is going to be reading to us from God's Word. Stressed to see that the city was full of idols. So we re reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you've been presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Good job, thank you. Good job. I think as some people were listening to that, they were thinking, wow, I'm glad he didn't ask me to do that. Some long, complex words there. And um, what I want to do this Sunday is to look at what it is that Paul is doing here as he is connecting the good news of Jesus to people that he's never met and to people who have never heard. People who are so culturally different from him that he has to build bridges so that he can even have a conversation. And as I, as I consider this with you, my principal concern is in two areas. One is that each of us here feel more equipped to be able to reach out to people who are obviously 
and patently different from us as we look at the world around us. And secondly, I would love for each person who is grappling with the internal realities of this, of this current world that we live in, the tensions, the inner conflicts, to find some peace in what it is that God says to you today. And I come to this passage, of course, having visited with a small team from Apex last week, our friends in Alaska, Refuge City Church and Love Alaska, have already had an impact uh, as they've sent Gwen Adams to us to teach in the last few months, and will have continuing impact as she and her team join us for our learning community process for Sunday in March. Being there in Alaska with them and seeing the development of skills in tools that we've all become familiar with, those skills worked out and hammered out tempered in the most difficult and extreme cultural margins among people who've been trafficked for sex indicates to me that these skills applicable to such a marginal environment are skills that we would be able to most effectively use in many other areas, much less extreme. And so I'm tremendously excited about their team coming to us and showing us and revealing to us the skills that they've developed in the missional tools with which many of us have become very familiar. Yesterday I was in Cleveland. I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and uh, hung out in there for a couple of hours and went around and looked at the, uh, the new inductees for the year. Who, um, whoever imagined that it would take Carol King that long to get inducted into the Hall of Fame. And of course, went through the various different displays and exhibits and uh, looked at some of the ones that would be no doubt my favorite. And amongst those favorites, of course, was the display on the Beatles, something that's come back to me recently because I've been watching Disney. Uh, the reason I've been watching Disney is that um, at Christmas we had grandchildren around our house and we decided it was worth paying the extra month subscription to get the Disney Channel. But of course, on the Disney Channel, there's awesome stuff for me. So who cares about the grandkids? And um, thank you for that. And um, on there, of course, there was the remarkable documentary by Peter Jackson, who discovered in a basement, I mean, imagine, it's like, a, it's like a mystery thriller, isn't it? Discovered in the basement of the Abbey Road studio, 150 hours of unseen cinematic film of the Beatles producing songs before they were ever recorded. An absolute goldmine. And as I watched it, I mean, it was almost too much at times. It was so poignant to hear the, the Beatles, John and Paul especially, writing songs that are now so familiar to us and trying out lyrics and trying out riffs and trying out different chords. It was just amazing to watch. And then, of course, the whole thing culminates with the famous concert on the roof of Abbey Road Studios. And... Um, 
that amazing series of documentaries, seven hours long, was something that completely gripped me. I wasn't equally gripped, but I was very much interested in the fact that on the same channel, Billie Eilish, who was presenting her newest album um, with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, was also present. I've become a bit of a fan of Billie Eilish in these last few months. And some of you will know who I'm talking about, and many of you won't. Why do I mention all of those before we get into this passage? Well, what it is that Paul is doing here in this presentation to the city council of Athens, the city council called the Areopagus, who gathered on Mars Hill in the shadow of the Acropolis for centuries in that cradle of democracy, Athens. There, as he presented the good news of Jesus and offered, as it were, a pre-evangelistic case for attending to the good news of Jesus, Paul was using skills that have only recently been rediscovered by sociologists. Paul, like many of the other great teachers and speakers of the New Testament, had skills of communication and connection that only recently we have rediscovered and understood. C. Wright Mills, who I've mentioned in sermons in the past, the great sociologist of the middle part of the 20th century, coined the phrase sociological imagination, by which he sought to explain to the general public what it was that sociologists were doing when they looked at culture and in looking at culture, understanding it and conveying that understanding to other people. And what he said was this, a sociologist looks at the arc of history under which culture and society emerge. That arc of history, of course, is something that be, can be painted with a broad brush. For us here in America, it would, of course, take in two world wars. It would take in a Great Depression. It would take in the civil rights movement. It would take in the emergence of mass market consumerism. It would take in the invention of computers, the internet, and social media. These broad brushstrokes under which all of us find ourselves nestling and covered under the umbrella of history is, of course, one way of understanding what it is that we have become in our communal self, in our corporate self, in our social self. But then C. Wright Mills said, alongside this broad arc of cultural history, there is the crucible of each person's story. And each person's story connects to the broader arc of history through their education, through their upbringing, through their workplace, through their friends, through their family. Each connection connects them to this arc of culture. Their story, their biography connects to the history. Here, as Paul is speaking to the Athenians, he's doing precisely the same thing. We discover at the end that two people's stories, a man and a woman, 
a man who is a leader in Athens, a woman who no doubt is someone of noble birth and origin, have among the others who have heard the good news of Jesus have bound themselves to the discipleship of the Savior. These individuals have had their stories changed. Their biographies have now a new chapter that reinterprets all of their story in terms of what it is that God has been doing in their life. But for their stories to be changed, their history had to be understood. And Paul, the master communicator, comes before the Areopagus and says, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious. Now, I'd like you to consider for a moment what it is that Paul has to do to make that statement. We're told by Luke at the beginning of the passage that he arrives in Athens without a team. For the first time, Paul has arrived in a location that God has sent him to by himself. He goes, of course, to the synagogue, as he would do in most places where he discovers that there is a synagogue present because there are people there who understand the Bible, who understand the God of the, of the book. And there he shares, as a visiting rabbi would, the story of Jesus and how the Messiah has come to save his people and to save all those Gentiles who've heard the word of Yahweh. And so he's there alone in the city sharing the good news in the synagogue. But as he travels around the city, he sees that the city is populated by thousands of Greek gods. The pantheon of the Greco-Roman world was gathered and clustered here in this city. This city of ideas, this city of philosophy and religion. On every street corner, there was a new altar where incense would be burned, where votive offerings would be offered, where sacrifices would be given. Paul, the Jew, raised at the foot of the greatest Jewish teacher of his day, Gamaliel, would remember the first of the commandments. He would know that Worshipping any other God. Worshipping any other graven image. Worshipping any idol would be so repellent to him that he would find it disgusting in the utmost. He would be completely repelled by this culture. His natural instinct would be to run away to the synagogue and hide his natural instinct would be to guard himself, to, to shroud himself with the biblical narrative and, and hide away in a corner someplace, away from this wicked and evil environment. But as he considers where it is that God has brought him and as he reflects in his aloneness, he comes to a different place. And when he stands before the Areopagus, instead of saying, I see that your evil idolaters given to sinful worship of other gods, 
He says, I see that you're very religious. Because as I've made a careful examination of your objects of worship, not idols, your objects of worship, I've discovered an altar to an unknown God. That which you worship as unknown, I'm going to reveal to you today. I wonder how we would have handled that. I wonder how the average American Christian would handle such circumstances. I wonder, I wonder whether the feeling of revulsion and repulsion would be so, so much that we really wouldn't be able to get to that gracious beginning of his presentation. I wonder whether we would have been able to gain a hearing because of our reaction to the repellent nature of the culture that surrounded us. Paul somehow found a way, not only of connecting, but connecting with compassion, with care, with kindness towards people who were clearly on a different path than him. And then in this masterful presentation, he reveals that he fully understands the external influences and the voices of those that have spoken into the formation of this culture. Those that are the current voices and those that are the historical voices. Those that come from John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and those that are echoed in the lyrics of Billie Eilish. He quotes Epimenides of Crete. Of course, you're very familiar with him, so I don't need to go any further in explaining who he was. Aratus of Cilicia is also quoted. In him, we live and move and have our being. We have hymns that remember those words. We have songs. We have quotes that inscribe this as scriptural truth. Of course, it's now been enshrined in scripture. But they're words that were spoken 600 years before the birth of Paul by Epimenides. Epimenides, the philosopher whose great philosophical paradox is still remembered to this day. Epimenides was from Crete. He was a Cretan. And his statement is this, all Cretans are liars. And so you're left with this paradox. If Epimenides is a Cretan, is he lying by making that statement? Or is he saying that all the other Cretans are liars and not him? Or is he saying something? You see, it's a paradox. And he leaves the paradox hanging in the air. Paul is quite familiar with this man because he quotes him again in one of his letters, in perhaps the last letter that he wrote to Titus. Titus, who he left on the island of Crete to do the work of mission there. Paul is a man 
who's thoroughly invested in the ideas that support the culture in which he had to move. Aratus was a philosopher from the region that he came from himself. Tarsus was in Silesia. Aratus said, all of us are God's children. We're all offspring. Of course, the name that he gave to God was Zeus. And so this hymn of Epimenides, this song, this lyric, this hymn of Aratus, this song, this lyric, that is remembered down through the ages, even in the minds of the Areopagus as he speaks to them, he's able to say, all you need is love. Maybe we just need to let it be. Maybe we just need to come together. I know I need someone's help. You see, Paul was thoroughly immersed in the world to which he was sent. And because he was thoroughly immersed in the world to which he was sent, he understood the arc of cultural history under which every audience was nestled. And because he understood the ark under which every audience was nestled, he was able to address the particular biography, the particular story, the particular narrative of each individual gathered under the ark of that history. For me, it's a very similar process. That history, that biography, that that broader understanding of the culture, the particular individuals that we're speaking to, help us to understand the ways in which we need to connect and in connecting, reveal the compassion of Jesus. Like Paul, I arrived in Dayton without a team. Sally and I were here in a location, I think for the very first time, without anyone coming with us from our previous location. Every other place that we've been to, every other missional assignment has been an assignment where a team came. And so there was a sense of aloneness. And given that the staff and the structures of Apex were so riven by conflict and pain, it was not a place where it was easy for the singular missionary to find a place of belonging. And partly because of that, and partly because it's my disposition anyway, I decided that I'd make my office in every coffee shop that I could find. And like Paul, as he went into the marketplace, 
where he discovered people who wanted to talk to him, I discovered that people wanted to talk to me. Who would, who would have imagined? Maybe it's a weird accent. That's what they said to Paul. What's this babbler saying? He speaks with a strange tongue. What's this babbler saying? In arriving, I explored the history. I, I looked at some of the early written records of people arriving here. I saw the story of the Native Americans, the emergence of leaders like Tecumseh, and the foundation of a state that would not enshrine slavery in its initial formation. I saw how the waves of migrants from the north of England, Scotland, and Ireland, my home territories, slowly they made their way across the Ohio River into these locations. I heard about the emergence of industry and agriculture and read of great floods, engineers and inventors who changed the world and made us fly. I listened carefully to the religious pain that I heard in the stories of people who told me of how guilty they felt when they went to church, how condemned they felt, how fearful they were of the religious leaders and of God himself. And how that fear often manifested itself as anger. Like Paul, I noted that there was a spiritual longing. But a spiritual longing that couldn't be placed in the religions that were encountered. You see, Paul, when he was in Athens, he saw this altar to an unknown god. Now, the reason that the altar to an unknown god was there is a historical fact. During the time of Socrates, the, the forefather, if you like, of, of Western philosophy, there was a plague that swept through Athens. This plague was so resistant that nothing that anyone did seemed to get rid of it. Eventually, having offered every sacrifice to every god that they knew, they came to Socrates and said, what should we do? And he said, the plague has been sent by an unknown god. Sacrifice to that deity. And so they did, and the plague lifted, and they were saved. And so from that time on, in Athens and in every other city of the Greco-Roman world, there was always an altar to an unknown god. But why was it there? It was there because their religion was predicated on fear. Their religion was predicated on fear. 
They were a group of capricious gods who were immortal, who had unassailable positions in heaven, who had incredible power, and they treated human beings as their playthings. And if you could not appease the gods, then they would surely get you. And so it's really important to make sure you know the names of all of the gods. And if there's one that you don't know the name of, that you have an altar to that unknown God so that you don't become the plaything of that God. You see, it's all fear. And so when you talk to people in Dayton, it's not altars to unknown gods. It's just a longing for peace and a desperate fear that God's going to get you. And that all the things that go wrong in life are probably to do with the things that we've done wrong. All the things that are going wrong are to do with the fact that we've done wrong and a God who wants to take vengeance on us is inflicting pain. Now, there's a little bit of truth in there, but deception wouldn't fool anybody if it wasn't close to the truth. But it's a deep, deep deception that leads people to be gripped by religious fear. Gripped by a longing to be free from it. And so they throw the shackles off and they're never going to mass again. They throw the shackles off and they're never going to Wednesday night service ever again. And they find their community in the bars and the pubs and the coffee shops. And there they find kindness and acceptance. Like the transgender person that I met just a couple of weeks ago who looked at me with diffidence and fear when we began to have a conversation in Starbucks. And then when they, of course, found my profile on social media and I saw them again, they were even more fearful. There's so much fear. And here's the reality. The reality is that that fear has been long-lasting and is part of the historical makeup of this city and the people who have come here to form it. But now, in each individual story, whatever was there in the past has been enlarged and extrapolated into the present. Because the great earthquake of a pandemic, the great shaking 
of a global epidemic, the, the great shaking of a plague that has swept the world, has shaken us to our roots so that everything that is shakeable in us has been shaken. And what felt like a place of security for many of us now feels like a place of vulnerability and fear. People who used to enjoy going to the grocery store now are afraid to venture out. People who once greeted others on the street as if they wanted to be with them are now diffident and afraid because the pressures on our culture have forced open the cracks that have been there forever, but now are great fissures in our hearts. And what you feel is fear. What you feel is anger. It's amazing how many people are angry who didn't used to be angry. I was listening to an audiobook uh, yesterday. The writer said Paddy was walking along the street in Belfast. He felt a gun against the back of his head. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant, the voice said. Paddy had to think quickly. I'm a Jew, he said. The voice said, I must be the luckiest Arab in the world. It's amazing how we've developed enemies over these last two years. It's amazing how people with whom we used to just have disagreements are now people who've manned the barricades and hate us. It's amazing, isn't it, that we in a culture that believed that all were born free and equal, discover that the experience of many is that they're bound and unequal still. The world that we face is a world full of the same things that Paul faced. Fear and anger. There's a direct connection between the fear and the anger because the anger is so often an expression of the fears that we hold in our hearts. Fears of other people taking something that's ours. Fears of people continuing to do the terrible things that have been done to us and our people in the past. Fears that somehow we will lose more than we've already lost. And so we cling desperately in our fear, in that reaction of fear, we hold on and we strike out. 
And in this world, everyone is on the margins. No longer is our society a place where there is a center and an edge. Now, all of the islands are broken up. And we all live on these little islands, gathering to ourselves just a few like-minded people that we can find on Facebook. Gathering to ourselves people who give us a like. Gathering to ourselves anyone who will agree with us to some extent. Because we feel so isolated and alone in our fear and anger. We have to find like-minded people. Are you afraid of the same things? Yeah, good. Well, I'll be with you then. Are you angry at the same things as me? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll be with you then. To fear and anger. Paul spoke words that connected spoke words that released. Here's a word about fear. The God that you're afraid of loves you. And the picture that's been painted is not true. He looks at the enemies of your life. And he says, because of those enemies, I'm going to come for you. I'm going to rescue you. Because of those things that cause you to be afraid, I'm going to step into that world of fear and anguish. And all the things that would make you most afraid. Death. Judgment. Separation. Alienation and isolation. All those things I'll experience. So that you know that I'm with you. But where they function as your enemies, I will defeat them. I'll take their greatest blows. And though it will kill me, it'll release you from ever having to face them yourself. You don't need to face judgment. Not the judgment that will separate you from God forever because Jesus took that separation. You don't need to face death, not the death that separates you from life forever, because Jesus accepted that death. You don't need to fear isolation and separation, not in the fundamental sense that you're alone in the universe, because Jesus, when he cried out, to the one person who, of course, he would always be connected to and was now severed from him, 
My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The voice of the derelict. You never need to utter those words. And what of the anger? Well, Jesus allays our fear because, of course, his perfect love casts out our fear. But he redirects our anger. He says it's not people. It's not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. It's the dark forces hidden behind the physical world that are seeking to pull the strings so that people do these awful things to each other. Direct your anger there. And with God, become a person who believes that in their right relationship with God, they can identify the evil that stands behind the person so that you're free to love the person and separate yourself from the evil. Now, I think that's called good news. And I think people who are bowed down by anxiety and fear, people who are gripped daily by the inner rage, rightly expressed about the terrible things that are happening in the world, But people who know fear, who, who express anger, it's good news for all of us who know those things. Because, of course, I'm afraid and I'm angry. But my fear has been taken up by one who loves me. And my anger has been redirected by the one who leads me. You see, it's really important for us to understand the world that we're in. To feel it. To connect with it. Because we're in the world. We're part of it. We're a creation too. And all of those fault lines that we see in society, they run right into the very heart of us. And this is what God says. He says, I'm shaking everything that's shakable so that what is unshakable is revealed. So allow the fault lines to do their work in you. Allow the shaking to do its work in you. Don't be afraid of the shaking. Embrace the shaking, because in embracing the shaking, in acknowledging the fear, in recognizing the anger, in allowing those fissures to open in your heart, you will discover a place that is solid and secure and unshakable.
It's only foolish people who cling to the shaking things that never find the unshakable thing. And in finding the unshakable, you find perfect love that casts out fear. In claiming the unshakable, you find the one who defines life and the universe and everything. So, in our work, in our world, in our, in our lives, my encouragement to you is to learn the lessons of Paul. Become expert in recognizing the trends and the movements of our culture. Become, become interested and curious of the stories of the people that you meet and ask them to tell you their story. And in doing that, allow God to prepare your missionary heart. To reach, out, to reach out with the unshakable presence of Jesus and his all-encompassing love. Amen? Let's stand together as we pray.